You're listening to a live audio recording from Women's Bible Fellowship at LEFC. This is week six, covering Commandments 1 and 5. So, this time, I'm not going to ask you if you're excited, but are you coming to see the beauty of God's law? It's easy to see his glory in creation, isn't it? When you look at a range of mountains or a thundering waterfall or the heavens with the stars and the galaxies, we feel God's glory, don't we? Last fall, David and I were camping on Assateague Beach when a hurricane passed offshores. And we sat watching these massive breakers, wave after wave rolling in and thundering and sea foam and spray flying everywhere. And we just marveled at God. But there's a lot of God's character and glory that we don't see in fallen creation. God's mercy and compassion for the weak and powerless. His desire for justice and integrity. His plan for flourishing and loving human community. His intent to dwell right in our midst. Those are beautiful things too, aren't they? And where do you see those? The answer, you should all know the answer by now. In the law, we see them in the law. Imagine the joy of living in a community that truly embodies all those desires of God's heart and lives them out in God's presence. Wouldn't that be awesome? That's the light, the delight that we should feel when we talk about the law. David commented to me, this sounds like Psalm 19 moving from the glory of God in creation to the beauty of God in his law. So listen to these sections of the psalm. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech, they use no words, no sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They're sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. So you see, we need both perspectives, the creation and the law, to get that beautiful picture of God. So today we're looking at authority, both divine and human, and how to honor that. The Oxford Dictionary defines authority as the power or right to give orders, make decisions, and enforce obedience. How does authority relate to law? Christie said last week that for law to work, there must be authority and submission, a recognition of authority and submission to it. So as a substitute teacher, my first job is to establish authority over the class. One Friday, I was teaching in a high school There was a football game that night, so the players all wore their team jerseys to school. In one class, I had four big football players. They must have been the defensive line. They sat together in a block. When I handed out the assignment, 
Those four put the papers under their seats, turned their desks together to make a little table, got out a deck of cards, and dealt poker hands all around. Yeah. <laughs> I laid down the law. I said, you will not play poker in my classroom. One guy folded his cards and put them down, and the other three just stared at me. The law was not working. There is no submission there. So I said, put the cards away and get out your assignment. And they sat and looked at me without moving. No recognition of my authority. The law is not working. So I said, right now you have three options. One, put the cards away and get out your work. Two, I can send you to the office. And three, if you refuse to go, because I was pretty sure they would refuse to move, I will call the office and get someone to come get you and take you there. And all of a sudden, everything changed. There was recognition of authority, the principal. And there was submission. Because if a football player gets in trouble with him, he might not get to play the game tonight, right? And suddenly the law worked. They put the cards away and they got their papers out and sat there looking at them. Didn't work, but it was good enough. <laughs> so there is law, authority, submission. But in a deeper sense, the law always works, whether or not there's recognition of authority or submission to it. Because God's laws are not just rules to follow. They're descriptions of how we're designed and how life works. His laws always work, even when we don't see visible or immediate consequences. The consequences may be hidden deep in our character or long-term waiting to catch up with us, but they are there. No one ever really gets away with anything. Years ago, I realized how much it would benefit my children for their whole lives if I could teach them that. You don't get away with anything. The other people aren't getting away with anything. And then in honesty, I realized it would help me if I really believed that deep in my heart. I had to start with me. So the law starts by establishing God's authority. The first commandment begins, I am the Lord your God, the ultimate authority, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. God claimed authority over Israel as the one who redeemed them out of Egypt. But he also has absolute sovereign authority over us and the whole world as our creator. Revelation 4.11 says, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. And somehow in the working of the Godhead, the Father delegated all authority to Jesus when he completed the work of redemption. The resurrected Christ said, speaking the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. And as believers in Christ, we are doubly under God's authority by creation and by covenant. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. Genesis 1.1 establishes monotheism. In the beginning, God created 
only one God who created everything. It's an insult to him to worship anything else. But why such harsh penalties, death, in chapter 13 for idolatry? Exodus 19, five to six says, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Israel is to be special, holy, a set-apart nation. Just as the holiness laws for priests are very strict, so the holiness laws for a kingdom of priests are very strict. The law was meant to serve as a strong warning to the Israelites. If it seems too harsh to us, perhaps we have too low a view of God's holiness and his purpose. The verse you read from Numbers 35 tells how bloodshed pollutes and defiles God's chosen land. Even the land where God sets his temple is to be holy. You also looked at Deuteronomy 22, 9 to 12. They're commanded not to plant two different kinds of seed in the vineyard, plow with an ox and a donkey, mix wool and linen together in their clothing, and they have to make tassels on their garments. It's hard for us to understand the importance of Israel being set apart, different from the nations around them. Some commentators say that these rules arose because of cult practices that they were not to resemble. But ultimately, they reinforced that there must be a separation in the Israelites' lives, not a mixing of ways with the pagans. They must carefully distinguish between God's ways and the world's ways and stay separate. The passage you looked at in 2 Corinthians 6 discusses the same theme, the need for believers to avoid unhealthy connection to the unbelieving world, to be separate. I think Paul was picturing an ox and a donkey in his mind when he said, do not be unequally yoked. How about the blue tassels? They were to be a distinguishing feature. They would be reminded on a daily, perhaps hourly basis that they were different and set apart. In Matthew 9, when the woman with the issue of blood touched the fringe of Jesus' garment and was healed, she probably touched a blue tassel. The word there can be fringe or tassel. Jesus was probably still wearing the tassels. And by Matthew 14, you read of many sick people wanting to touch the fringe of Jesus' garment. How would you feel about wearing an identifying mark? I wonder if maybe our Christian graphic t-shirts are sort of a modern version. So what's the idolatry that the Israelites are warned against? The Heidelberg Catechism defines idolatry as having or inventing something in which one trusts in place of or alongside of the only true God. Have you ever wondered why when they had this glorious, powerful God, the Israelites could ever be tempted by pagan idolatry? I have. A commentary on Exodus by Doug Stewart gives some interesting insight into the temptation of Canaanite idolatry. Some of the things he mentions are, one, it's a guaranteed transaction, ritual and contention, ceremony with specific results for a specific object. It's all well-defined. Two, it's selfish. I'm there for what I want, not for what the God wants. Three, it's easy and convenient. 
You don't have the high moral standards. You don't have to go to Jerusalem all the time. Just go to a high hill or a big tree. Four, it's normalized. Everyone around you is doing it. It seems like the thing to do. Might as well follow the crowd. And five, it's erotic. A lot of sexual immorality. Temple prostitution, ritual orgies. Now look at these. They seem to fit our culture pretty well too, don't they? Maybe our temptations are not so different from theirs. Except for us, idolatry isn't usually a conscious choice. It's something we sort of slide into. Things other than God sneak into the wrong place in our lives. What goes on around us begins to seem so normal that we stop being shocked by how different it is from God's ways. Constant immersion in God's word, seeking his heart in prayer, listening to the Holy Spirit, living in accountable Christian community are great weapons against being pulled in. And of course, learning to treasure God because our hearts will always seek our treasure. Idolatry hits at the heart of the first commandment. Listen to Deuteronomy 6.5. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. An all-consuming love for God has no place for rivals. God often uses the metaphor of marriage to describe his relation to his people. There's no room in marriage for another boyfriend or girlfriend or mistress. It's an exclusive arrangement. So how do we measure our love for God? Not by comparing ourselves to the people around us. Take a deep look at what God says in his word and use that as a standard. Jesus said some pretty strong things about being willing to lose our lives, pick up our cross, deny ourselves, find our treasure in God alone. Chip Mershon holds a prayer meeting for the worldwide persecuted church on the second Sunday of every month after the second service. We pray for believers who risk their lives daily to follow Jesus and preach the gospel. And I'm challenged, what do I risk? We pray for believers who go to church not knowing what the day holds, whether by nightfall they'll be jailed or grieving for family and friends who are jailed or even killed before their eyes, or maybe they themselves will be killed and will see the Lord that day. What a way to end worship. And I'm humbled. Suddenly my love for God seems pretty feeble in comparison to that. So if you wanna be challenged and humbled, you can come pray with us. But wherever you are, don't think that you've arrived. Keep pressing in, there's so much more. God's uniqueness and authority are the most basic principles of the law, and that's where the 10 commandments start. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And Jesus said, the second command is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If we move from how to relate to God, which was the first column on your law chart, to how to relate to humans, that's the second column on your chart, we have to look at authority again. God created us to live in community, and we cannot live in community without law and human authority structures. These human structures are established by God. 
You read Romans 13:1. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. He said it twice. The structures derive authority from God, but they're not independent of him. God doesn't give humans free reign to rule over little kingdoms. We can modify our definition. Human authority is the power or right to give orders, make decisions, enforce obedience. It's a stewardship from God that includes accountability and responsibility. Rejection of authority is a growing problem in our culture. But think, if all authority is from God, sourced from him and established by him, what happens when God and his authority are rejected? When people say, what gives you the authority to fill in the blank? Society doesn't have a good answer anymore. So we come to the fifth commandment. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. That parent-child relationship is the basic building block of a social system, the basic unit of human authority. The way a child is raised becomes a template for the rest of his life. Learning to submit to parental authority sets him up for proper relationship to authorities the rest of his life. A child learns from what is visible and can later translate that to God who's invisible and to other forms of authority. Actually though, this command is addressed just as much and maybe more to adult children. The parent-child relationship continues as long as they both live. How's that worked out with adults? The command here is not to obey but to honor. That means treat them with love and respect and care. You can care for their needs, speak well about them, pray for them, bless them, stay in relationship with them as much as you can. What if you had difficult parents? You can still do all of the above. If they're not believers, you do whatever you can to make the relationship work. I came to the Lord in high school and my parents were quite opposed. Several months later, they came into my room and told me, that I had to stop believing this extreme doctrine. And I said, I wanna obey you. If you told me I couldn't go to church or I couldn't read my Bible in front of you, I'd have to stop. But I can't stop believing what I know is true. So that's an impossible request. When I wanted to go to Bible college for a year, I deferred to them and they gave permission. When I later wanted to extend my studies, to get a degree in Bible, I was sure they'd say no. They were paying for it, but I asked anyway. They weren't happy, but they said they didn't want to come between me and God. Like since when didn't they want to come between me and God? I didn't say that, but I was shocked. But they agreed. And soon afterwards, they both believed in Christ. That desire to respect and obey softened their hearts. Of course, the Holy Spirit did the real work, both in them and in me, and you don't always see those same results, but the principle holds. 1 Peter 3, 1 to 2 describes that principle made explicit in another situation. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, 
when they see your respectful and pure conduct? Is your heart desire to honor God and have a testimony that draws people to Christ or to get your own way and put down someone you think is wrong? So what do you do with the instructions about the rebellious son in Deuteronomy 21, 18 to 21? I've heard a lot of feedback about that. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who won't listen to his father and mother disciplining him, he's to take his son to the elders at the city gate, explain it all to them, and all the men of the city stone him to death. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel shall hear and fear. Let me give you a few perspectives. This is not a child, someone old enough to be a drunkard. Both parents have tried to discipline and train him. The final issue is decided by the city elders who have watched the whole situation. When Corey Mitchell teaches this passage, you, some of you have heard him, he says it serves mostly as a warning to parents to be diligent and to children to be submissive. He says, what parent would actually want to bring their child before the elders? Wouldn't they do everything possible to prevent it? And there's no record of the penalty ever actually being carried out. That's all true. And there's another aspect too. Whenever scripture makes you feel uncomfortable, let it challenge your perspective and values. Look at yourself too. Look at what disobedience to parents is grouped with in these passages. In Romans 1, talking about people who suppress the truth of God, they're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. And in 2 Timothy 3, talking about the last days, people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy. Does it feel strange that disobedient to parents is linked with such serious sins? Maybe that means, like we said about God's holiness, that we need to take family relationships quite seriously. Jesus could have criticized the Pharisees for many, many things, but he chose to denounce them at length for failing to care for their parents and breaking the fifth commandment. So just as the first commandment established God as a supreme authority, so the fifth commandment lays the groundwork for human authority structures. How do we get from parents to other human authority? The Westminster Larger Catechism says, by father and mother in the fifth commandment are meant not only natural parents, but all superiors in age and gifts. And especially such as by God's ordinance, get that, by God's ordinance are over us in place of authority, whether in family, church, or commonwealth. We said that for community to exist, we need authority structures outside the family too. And in Deuteronomy, you looked at the commands for Levites and priests, the kings, the judges, the prophets. They all have authority delegated by God to be carried out in line with God's standards. That's a stewardship. Even kings who might be tempted to see themselves as independent authorities actually had to write out a personal copy of the law and study it. They serve as authorities in submission to God and to his word. And you noted too that Jesus fills all these roles perfectly. 
priest, king, prophet, judge. He not only kept the law, he was the fulfillment of the law, the goal and embodiment of what the law looked forward to. So we don't have those judges, priests, kings, and Levites over us. How does it apply to us? Israel in the Old Testament was a theocracy, a nation governed by God with human intermediaries. But by the time of Jesus, the Jewish nation had been reduced to serving other powers. No more theocracy. We saw in Matthew that the Jews struggled with this. Many didn't want to recognize any secular authority as legitimate. But when Jesus was asked about paying taxes to Caesar, his answer led them into a new paradigm. Give Caesar what you owe to Caesar and God what you owe to God. In essence, Jesus affirmed two distinct authority structures. And then as we move through the New Testament, we see clear instructions about submission to human authority. We already mentioned Romans 13. Paul wrote that to Roman Christians living under the reign of Nero. And he called the authorities God's ministers and God's servants. Even non-Christian and anti-Christian governments are to be held in respect and honored. Elsewhere in the New Testament, we're told that family structures are to be honored. Church elders have authority in the church and authority in the workplace is to be respected. The problem with human authority is our humanness, right? It can be good, bad, or really ugly. We misuse the structures that God has established, but they are still his structures. Sometimes we see God calling authorities to account for their behavior. In the book of Daniel, God reduced Nebuchadnezzar, one of the most powerful men in world history, to living like an animal for seven years until he acknowledged God. Do you remember what happened to King Herod in Acts 12 when he got too proud? An angel of the Lord struck him down. Anyone here who was in Bible quizzing with my kids? Acts 12, 23 was a memory verse one year. I can still hear two teenagers chanting, and he was eaten by worms and died. They loved that. <laughs> so why doesn't God intervene like that more often? Okay, you probably have a lot of people on your worm list. That's a study in itself. But for now, how do we deal with bad authority that God allows to continue? We respect and submit as much as we can. No human authority is perfect. In Acts 5, the apostles said to the Sanhedrin, we must obey God rather than men. But how do you know you've reached the point when you must choose between God and human authority? Let me give you one suggestion. Make sure that your heart is truly desiring to honor and submit to those God-ordained authorities as much as possible. And not just eagerly or angrily looking for a loophole and a way to attack them. I think that if we truly saw the wisdom of God and the beauty of the structures that he's ordained for our good, it would be much easier to submit, wouldn't it? So we're back to the beginning, the beauty of God in the law. This fifth commandment has a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long. 
The beauty of God's law produces beauty and flourishing in our own lives. So let's pray that we can treasure these things in our hearts and see the beauty of what God is doing. Let's pray. Father, we find these things so hard to understand and equally hard to submit to sometimes. I pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts to see you, to see your beauty, to see your authority, to see what you desire from us and to live in a way that brings honor and delight to you and flourishing in our lives. And we commit all these things to you in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>